Well, if you have a Bible this morning, let's open up to 1 Thessalonians. We're starting a new sermon series now that's going to take us up into the Advent uh, season. And so we're going to be in this New Testament letter of uh, Thessalonians. So remember, if you have no idea where Thessalonians is, it's okay. It's in the New Testament. Please feel free to use your table of contents. There's a pew Bible there. If you don't know where Thessalonians is, it's okay. Would love for you to go there. Remember Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and you get into Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And then right after Colossians comes the letter of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to look at the first 10 verses this morning as we look to uh, these two important letters that Paul wrote. And so remember, we have said before the way the Bible works, if you're visiting, the way the Bible works is the Old Testament says somebody's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel accounts say somebody's here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again. And so who is that someone? It is the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah in the Old Testament, the Messiah who shows up when Jesus says, I'm here, I'm the Son of God, He is in your midst. And then as He ascends into heaven, He promises to return in glory. That's where we are this morning, these letters to the Thessalonians. Very helpful for us. So while you're opening up there, Rachel Wolchin once said, Be mindful when it comes to your words, a string of some that don't mean much to you may stick with someone for a lifetime. You know, you've heard, uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We all know that that's not how it works. Oftentimes we would prefer the sticks and stones to the wounds of words. And these word, words can be very powerful in a person's life. And I'll tell you a story, I think I've mentioned this before. My dad smoked two packs, sometimes over two packs of cigarettes a day for years. Smoked for a long, long time. And um, he heard a speech from the Surgeon General C. Everett Coop in 1988 talking about the addictive nature of nicotine. And my father had been smoking for a long time. And he heard this report by C. Everett Coop in the late 80s. And basically what C. Everett Coop was talking about was the addictive nature of nicotine power of that. He was showing graphs and charts. I actually went and found it last night and rewatched it uh, because it, it's so tied to my family's history. And C. Everett Coop actually compared the addictive nature of nicotine to uh, cocaine and heroin and said it's just as addictive. And he had all these things. And my dad was actually watching that report from C. Everett Coop. And I was a little squirt at the time. He told me about this later on. And he said he sat there and got so mad at C. Everett Coop. And he said, that guy just called me a cocaine addict. And it made my dad so angry that he quit smoking cold turkey that night and never looked back. It made him so angry. And you go back and you watch this news report, and it was just a very kind of standard, you know, it was a scientist just kind of flatly showing the report. And it made my dad so angry that he, he quit cold turkey and he never looked back. My dad had a very powerful reaction to the words of someone else, and it changed his entire life. As you can imagine, I am very thankful for C. Everett Coop for making my dad angry when I was eight years old back in 1988. I'm grateful for that. It changed. My dad is still here uh, because of that, and I'm grateful. You may have also seen, talking about the power of words, you may have also seen these reaction videos where people might hear a, a piece of music for the first time or interact with something, and they video themselves with their first reaction to it. And there is a, a song that Johnny Cash covered right at the end of his life. He covered Trent Reznor's 1994 song, Hurt, for the first time. 
And it's a very simple song. You may have heard it. It's just vocals, piano, and a little bit of guitar. It's a very simple arrangement. And Reznor originally wrote the song about the devastation left behind by drug addiction, but Cash, when he covered the song, he paired it with a music video that included old home movies of him and his family. And it's a gripping, haunting song that Cash covered near the end of his life. You can actually hear his age and his voice. And when you watch the video, you can tell this was, this was recorded very, very late as he's an old man. And what it's doing is, is he actually he took the song and is using it as a time to reflect back on his life. And the chorus says, What have I become, my sweetest friend? Everyone I know goes away in the end. And you can have it all, my empire of dirt. I will let you down. I will make you hurt. And one commenter said, Johnny made this a completely new song. Nobody has ever crammed more regret, anguish, and pain into three and a half minutes. And the amazing thing about this video and these reactions is regardless of the age, regardless of the ethnicity, people hearing this cover for the first time, basically the response was all the same. The video would end, and it would leave people in tears with stunned silence. And they, one person said, I don't think I'll ever be the same again after watching that video and hearing that. And, one, and both of these examples show us that words can be incredibly powerful, but typically words are even more powerful when we're dealing with doubt and shame and guilt and sorrow and struggle. And when you think about your own life, what, what words have been powerful in this way for you? Have there been words that you have heard that have changed the entire direction of your life? Maybe it was a song or a hymn that you heard or sung for the first time, a poem that you read, maybe a handwritten note that you received from someone, maybe a quote, something that you read or saw or interacted with that changed the complete trajectory of your life. Words that were really, really powerful. I remember when I was struggling with my call to seminary and, and thinking like maybe the Lord might be calling me into ministry, but I feel like such a wreck. <laughs> Who am I to do this? And I'm, you know, grad school scares me. I remember going out to breakfast with three of my friends in Western North Carolina who looked me in the eyes and said, you need to get over yourself and go to seminary. Those words changed the course of my life. I applied the very next day. Powerful words lead to changed life, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Let me set a little bit of historical context here as the intro to the new sermon series. We're about to read the opening of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young, small church that was facing constant harassment and hostility in one of the largest cities of the Roman world in AD 50. One commentator called Thessalonica the New York City of Macedonia. It had a massive port. It was centrally located along this famous road called the Via Ignatia. Think major interstate, but where, where people walked. It had fertile farmland, lots of mining, fishing, infrastructure, culture. It was just a big, wealthy city. And it also had significant religious influence, lots of temples and shrines to pagan gods. One thing about Thessalonica that was really interesting, it was only 50 miles away from Mount Olympus. If you're familiar with Greek mythology, you know that Mount Olympus is where the gods uh, resided. And so actually Thessalonica was a main port city where people who were making their pilgrimage to Mount Olympus, they would come in through that port city and go up to Mount Olympus. And they would spend their money in that city there. It was also a free city in the Roman Empire, which was really interesting. They had their own government system. They, they um, 
they also were able to, uh, they had their own government. They were free from Roman military occupation. They could mint their own coins. And so what Thessalonica did is they did everything they could to try to keep the favor of the Roman Empire. And we'll see that Paul starts messing with that as we move forward. But they tried everything they could to keep the favor of Rome to maintain this free city status because they knew if the ire of the Roman Empire was raised against them, they would now have soldiers that would be quartered in their town. They would not be able to freely govern themselves. You know, there was just a lot going on there, a lot tied up in the midst of that. And there, were also, there was also a very wealthy synagogue there. And you had some uh, very wealthy, powerful, influential Jewish leaders who would be there. And, uh, and they were afraid as well. And so on his second missionary journey, Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, traveled to this prosperous port city. It actually still exists today. Thessalonica is still a city. It's still where it always has been. It's on the Aegean Sea. And Acts 17 records that Paul and Silas and his band had been shamefully treated there by the Jewish leaders. And in Acts 17, these Jewish leaders, speaking of Paul and his band, said, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And they were afraid. And, but despite that constant opposition, a church was planted. And Paul had been worried about them from the day he had smuggled, he had been smuggled out of the city. And he was worried about this small church. He was worried that they would be crushed under this impression. He was also worried that they might return back to paganism and idolatry. And so these two epistles that Paul wrote, First and Second Thessalonians, are actually some of the earliest letters that he wrote as an apostle. We have them recorded for us in the New Testament. And as we'll see, Paul was very encouraged by the report that Timothy brought back because the words that he had spoken there had changed the entire direction of their lives. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 1 through 10. Don't worry, that was all baked into the cake. But a little bit of context for you. So think big, wealthy, powerful city, lot going on. Here comes Paul, and everybody had heard about Paul. And, then, and now he's, he receives this report, writes this letter to them. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. See if you can spot the things that change the entire direction of these people's lives. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything." For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us this morning as we ask the Lord's help. Oh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are thankful for your word, and we thank you that every bit of it's true. And this morning, as we look to this text, we pray, O Lord, that you would take these words and seal them into our hearts and remind us of the gospel. We pray and ask all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. 
I don't know if you picked up in this passage, but it's actually really interesting because it basically tells us how Christians are made and the impact of Christianity on a human life. And this passage is also really relevant for us today because it shows us how Christians stood out from an increasingly pagan culture that surrounded them. Does that sound familiar to you? Very helpful, very relevant passage. And so this morning, if you're a note-taking type of person, we're going to look at two big points, okay? The first thing we're going to see and we're going to ask is, we're going to see how Christians are made. What does that look like? The second thing we're going to look at is how Christians are changed. So how Christians are made, how Christians are changed, okay? So let's look at that first point. And hopefully you will see in the midst of both of these points, there is one central thing that both of these revolve around. So let's look at this first point, how Christians are made. Paul opens in verse 1 with a traditional ancient Near Eastern format where we have the signatures at the beginning. So you know how we end letters, you know, sincerely, Dave Latham, and you might put your title down there at the bottom in an email. Well, all of that stuff goes at the front of an ancient Near Eastern letter. And so you have the signatures at the beginning. It also gives us the audience, which is the church of the Thessalonians. And we also see Paul's standard greeting. He used this a lot, grace and peace to you. Silvanus is also there mentioned. His Latin name is Silas, and he was chosen by Paul to accompany him on his second missionary journey, and he had also delivered the decision of the Jerusalem council. So Silas was a pretty influential dude. And then you also have Timothy mentioned, who was son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother, and at this time was still a relatively new believer, but he would go on to be a pastor and elder in Ephesus, and he would himself later receive two letters from the hands of his spiritual uh, mentor, Paul. You may be familiar with those letters, First and Second Timothy, this guy. So in verse 2, Paul gives thanks for, the, for this church and shows his pastoral care. I hope you picked up on his heart for them as you read. And in verse 3, Paul uses his standard triad. Did you pick up on this? Faith, hope, and love. All of those in verse 3 as he recalls the faithfulness of these believers to Christ and their ministry to others. And we're going to see that more in our second point. But verses 4 and 5 are the heart of Paul's thanks to God. This is a thanksgiving section. And what's at the very heart of that is is mentioned in verse 2, this thanks to God. Look at what he says in verse 4 and 5. He says, Brothers loved by God. Remember, Paul's previous name was Saul, and he was a Jewish Pharisee. He used to look down his nose at the Gentiles. He used to drag Christians off to prison and preside over their executions while other people clapped and spread their cloaks on the ground in front of him. And now look at what Paul says to these Gentiles. What does he call them? Brothers. You are my brothers. We've talked about the spiritual adoption. And what Paul is mentioning here is you are now my brothers and sisters in the faith. You see even a radical transition in the life of Paul. But even here, he's calling, you are my brothers. Look as he goes on here. He says that he has chosen you. Again, we see sovereign divine election on full display again. And the Greek word ekloge is used. This word's used seven times in the New Testament. Six times it's translated election and one time it's translated chosen. So this verse literally reads in the Greek, Knowing, brothers, the beloved ones of God, His choice of you. Remembering God's sovereign mercy and His election. Here's what J. Philip Arthur said in his commentary. He said, Election, however, is not arbitrary. A random choice along the lines of eeny, meeny, miny, moe. 
While God saves those whom He is pleased to save, He does so because He loves them. This is not to say that He loves and therefore chooses certain people because they are worthy of it. No one deserves the electing love of God. Christians are not chosen because they are holy. They are chosen in order that they might become holy. So this sovereign electing love of God the Father, Paul is recognizing, look, you are my brothers, the ones whom he has called by grace. And notice this is all still included in the thanksgiving section. Why? Why would Paul be rejoicing and thankful for this? Because all of this reveals the gracious love of God that he freely chose to set his love upon those who were unworthy of his love and then do whatever it took to rescue them and redeem them so that he could adopt them into his, his forever family by sheer grace and mercy. Ladies and gentlemen, that is our story. That is our story. If you are here and you know Christ, it is because him and his mercy, he sought you out because he loves you and committed to do whatever it would take to rescue you and redeem you and to adopt you into his family. And as Paul says, we now cry, Abba, Father, because we have this new relationship with God by grace alone. I mean, think about this. This Thessalonian church was primarily concerned, uh, comprised of a bunch of formerly God-hating Gentile pagans and probably a few formerly self-righteous Jews who didn't think that they need God's saving grace. And so this is just as relevant as it always has been. We've said the human heart has changed 0% since the fall. It's just the wrapper's a little different on the outside. You think about this, and why is this passage so relevant? The reason that it's relevant is that the only reason that you are a Christian today is because you have been ransomed back from the grave and eternal separation, God, because of your sin. And all of that is by sheer grace. God chose to set his love upon you, send his son to die in your place, and to call you to himself. It is an amazing work of grace. Have you ever thought about that? That if you were here and you trust Christ and you know Christ as your Savior... It is all because while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he pursued you. He came to you. He sought you out. It's amazing when you think about it. None of us were worthy of this. None of us. But yet, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. All day long. That's our story. And you think about this, 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 31. Here's what Paul talked about. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame those strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written... Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. All right, let's be honest. We don't like these passages. Why? Because it removes our boasting, does it not? It removes us from the equation where we can't say, look at how smart I am and look at what I've done and I did this in the right order. Isn't God lucky to have me on his team? The verses like this and passages like this remove us. They humble us in the right way. What we realize is in the trophy case of heaven, Jesus' name is the only one on the trophy. 
We don't even get a participation trophy. We don't even get the little participation slip. Jesus' name is the only one on the trophy. And as we are here, when we think about our salvation, you go, I'm okay with that. My name is not worthy to be on the trophy. And I am grateful that I am hidden in Christ, the one who has rescued and redeemed me and secured that salvation while I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I will tell you again, the best thing that has ever happened to you already happened to you 2,000 years ago at a Roman cross. That's it. That is how the gospel works. And so we hear these passages, and they it's kind of this weird feeling that we have, don't we? We don't like it in some sense. It's super offensive. What do you mean that I don't have anything to do with it? That's exactly what it is. You have nothing to do with it. But yet, isn't it comforting to know that you don't have anything to do with it simultaneously? That while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, while you were shaking your fist in the midst of your rebellion, God came to you and changed your heart by sheer grace alone. You who were once his enemies, you're now his family. Don't you see it? That's it. And we look at that and go, thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you for your compassionate heart to people like me. And so how are Christians made? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. That's how, it, that's how it happens. And what is the main vehicle that brings this change about? It is the proclamation of the true gospel message of grace, which does a few things. It glorifies Christ on his throne, and it humbles us before his cross. It is coupled also with the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in the human heart. It is one thing I have to remember, and I feel the weight of it every morning when I drive into this parking lot. I go, who am I? Who am I to do this? But yet, Lord, I trust you that I am going to just be as faithful as I can to the text, and I'm just going to trust the Holy Spirit with the rest because the Holy Spirit changes people's hearts. I have to look in the mirror and go, Dave, you are not the Holy Spirit Dave, you are not Jesus. And isn't that a good reminder for every one of us to look in the mirror from time to time and go, I am not the Lord. And be okay with that. You think about this. You, you read in, I mean, we're, we're just into verse 4. Look at what he says. We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, verse 5, why? Because our gospel came to you. Don't you see the pursuing power of God? The gospel came to you. You weren't looking for it. You weren't pleading for it. The gospel came to you, and it changed everything about your life. It says it came to you through the weakness of other humans, coupled with the regeneration and the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. And it says this gospel came to you not only in word, but also what? In power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Here's what Keller said, and some of you may have experienced this. He said, the gospel, as it were, walks. It deals with you. At first you thought you were investigating it, but you soon realized that it is actually investigating you. Here's again what he said about the power of the gospel, Keller. He said, Theodoret, a Syrian bishop in the 5th century, likened the gospel to a pepper. A pepper outwardly seems to be cold, 
But the person who crunches it between the teeth experiences the sensation of burning fire. In the same way he goes on, the gospel can appear at first like an interesting theory or philosophy, but if we take it in personally, we find it full of power. Some of y'all have experienced the power of the pepper of the gospel as it has come in and has changed your life. Many of you can identify with, with what Paul is talking about in this verse as he reflects on the work of the Holy Spirit among this fledgling Thessalonian church. What, month, what once may have just been old words on a page suddenly came to you and became to you the words of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. You may have grown up thinking, I don't care about these old words in this old dusty book. Who cares? But then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes, flips the light switch on, and all of a sudden you realize these are the words of life. Where else am I going to go? It's all I got. If you are here and you do not know Christ, this is why we as Christians cling so tightly to the words of Scripture. This is why we cling so tightly to it. The Holy Spirit has moved us from spiritual death and indifference into spiritual life. And once the light bulb comes on, you can't unsee it. This is why we hold so tightly to the words of Scripture. Because we believe it is the Word of God given to us. And we trust it and we rest in it. Because we find out that as we read the pages of Scripture, we find out that it's actually reading us. You ever felt like that? This Bible is reading me. It knows me better than I know myself. We've seen the holiness of God. We've seen our own sin and rebellion. We've received this new heart and new eyes by faith. And that has completely changed the trajectory of our lives. And it's propelled us not to run daily to ourselves and say, Hey, look at how smart I am and figured it all out. No, it propels us to run daily to Christ as we see our need for Him. We've received the content of the gospel message with great joy and full conviction because we realize it's the very Word of God. It carries its authority. And so we believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the Scripture alone. We rest and we trust in all of this. Powerful words lead to a powerfully changed life. That's our second point, which is shorter. Okay, How Christians are changed. Look, at, look at back at Paul's triad in verse 3, where he says, faith, hope, and love. Look at what he says in verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what the ESV study Bible said. Work, labor, steadfastness. These are practical outworking of the Thessalonians' conversion. The work the Thessalonians do is a result or consequence of their faith. So too their labor flows from love and their endurance or steadfastness comes from hope. The gospel that saves us is also the gospel that changes us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are regenerated and then we are completely remodeled from the inside out by the, all for the glory of God alone. So it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. We are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are completely remodeled and renovated from the inside out at the heart level by the power of the Holy Spirit, not for our own glory, but for the glory of God alone. 
This is what Paul meant when he wrote, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake? This was not self-promotion. This is a recognition of what God had done in their own lives, enabling them to live lives in tune with the gospel that they preached. Do you realize we sang this earlier? Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Our hearts have been retuned. We hear the song for the first time. And, and the Lord changes us as we, we hear these words. And you think about in verse 6, Paul heard about the tremendous pressure these young Christians were dealing with in such a large city in the shadow of Mount Olympus. Could you imagine being a small Christian church in one of the major tourist destinations for a bunch of Greek worshiping pagan idolatry in the, in the shadow of Mount Olympus? And Paul is writing this letter to them. See, we, we think these letters just floated out of the sky and they came bound in leather with a little ribbon in the middle with gold around the edge. These letters were written in real space and time to other people in real space and time by someone else in real space and time. And this is what the Thessalonians were wrestling with. Could you put yourself in their shoes just for a few seconds and imagine the pressure that they're feeling? And you could see, you could imagine this, this is a... a, a Paul said, yet they still, even in the midst of that, received the word in much affliction and with joy. Isn't that a paradox in the Christian life? The watching world has always been befuddled over Christians for centuries. That even in the midst of suffering and hardship and crushing weight, yet still there, they have joy. You're like, where do you get that from? It makes no sense. Where does that joy come from in the midst of intense suffering? Like we've talked about before when the, when the war in Ukraine broke out. you got these videos of people in a bombed out building gathering together on a Sunday morning and singing hymns and taking the supper together. Singing hymns of joy while the bombs are falling. And you go, what in the world is that all about? It's because their hope is not grounded in themselves. It's grounded in a person. It's grounded in Christ. It's grounded in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's why we can have joy in the midst of suffering. Because we know that suffering doesn't have the last word. Jesus does. And so we say, come what may. Come what may. We still have Christ. The gospel had made tremendous progress in Thessalonica. And Paul referred to three specific phases of their growth. Look in verse 1. Or look in verse 5. This first phase, the gospel had come to them. Verse 6, phase 2, they had received it enthusiastically, even in the midst of tremendous hostility. And phase 3, verses 7 and 8, they had become enthusiastic advocates for the gospel where they lived. They had become such an encouragement for other churches in the area that they had verbally spread the same gospel message that they had heard throughout the region. And so much so, did you, Paul, did you hear Paul say, you've done that so well that there's no need to say anything else. That's a tall order for a preacher. Nope, y'all handle it. I don't have anything else to say. Okay? That was a joke, by the way. <laughs> Simply put, what Paul is saying is, is they were walking in a manner worthy of the calling by which they had been called, as we see in Ephesians 4.1. Other, others had noticed it, and they stuck out like a sore thumb in a God-honoring way. Verses 9 and 10, Paul gives us a few specific ways that these Thessalonians had been powerfully changed by the gospel message when paired with the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at what he said. He said that they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Remember where they lived, capital of Mount Olympus, the New York City of Macedonia in a port city. And he said, we see that these words changed the trajectory of your life so much so you left that old way behind completely. Look at what else he says. 
He says, this is a call for us today to turn away. When we think about how they turned away from their idols, it's a call for us to turn away from our idols as well. Anything you love more than God is an idol. Money, power, control, career, having perfect children, your family name, religious resumes, being right all the time, your intellect, the list goes on and on. And we're called to return to the true and living God who sought us out and saved us by grace. One of my seminary professors said there are ten commandments and we can't even get past number one. That you shall have no other gods before me. Forget the other nine. We can't even make it past number one. And so, as we come to the Lord's table, one of the things we do is examine our heart idols. We repent. We return to the Lord. Look at what else Paul said in verse 10. The other thing Paul pointed to is that they had learned with great patience in the midst of affliction in verse 10 to do what? To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And this is another thing that we do as we approach the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How has the gospel changed your life? Has it? How is it continuing to change your life? Is Jesus becoming more precious to you? Is your faith being strengthened? Are your doubts being replaced by hope? Little by little. How is the gospel, these words that we interact with, how is it changing your life? 1 Peter 3, 1-9, we'll finish with this. But Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Y'all, I don't have any better closing illustration for you. You know, normally I like to tell a little story at the end. I don't have any better closing illustration for you than this table right here in front of you. The only words that I have to share with you are the same words that Christians have rallied around for centuries. And it is this, the gospel message of grace. And as we come to the table this morning, I've got some really good news for you. That the Lord knows that we're forgetful. The Lord knows that our hearts get rusty that we need reminders of His grace and reminders of His mercy. And so, by His grace and mercy, He has given us this physical reminder of His grace set before us. This is a good gift. The other reason why this table is good news is because this is not a table for perfect people. This is not a table for people who have won life's lottery and figured it all out. Actually, it's the exact opposite. This table is for Christians who look to Jesus by faith for those who see their sin and see their need for a Savior.